0: We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. So what I'm going to read here at the beginning, and uh, we'll pray and dive in. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and um, we're happy to get one to you. If you don't own one, that can be our gift to you. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, and then the little verses there, verse verses 13 to 34 So what I'm going to read. It's a little long, but uh, get ready. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus there, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you in the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more? Will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Verse 32 now. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. It is an astounding thing, Lord, to stop For a moment, amid the chaos and the craziness that typically characterizes, at least my life, probably many of our lives, busy running here and there, it is a profound thing to stop and realize what you are saying in this text to us, that you are here. That you are our eternal Father. That you are caring for us in these moments in Jesus Christ. That you have an eye to every one of our needs. And a heart to provide. And the ability, (laughs) an arm, to see it through. Whatever we come in anxious about, whatever we come in weighed down with care concerning, Lord, you know. And you want to help. So, God, I pray help me. Help this church. Help everyone in this room this morning. Move from anxiety. Burden towards the freedom of the children of God. Only you can do this, Lord, and we ask you to do these things by your Spirit for our good, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, we read. From verses 13 to 34 here at the beginning, um, not because I plan to go into all of those verses here this morning, but because I think the whole uh, of this text is necessary to understand and properly interpret the part. Uh, you'll recall last week, we actually dove into those opening verses, verses 13 to 21. I'm not going to spend much time there this morning, but I wanted us to see some of the transitional things that happen. I think it'll help us, uh, see and interpret or write what we do, uh, what we are going to focus on in verses 22 to 31. Next week, God willing, we'll tackle those amazing verses in verses 32 to 34, um, and give kind of a Sunday of its own to those. So this morning, my focus is going to be verses 22 to verses 31, or to verse 31. Now, um, within within that little frame, we have probably some of the sweetest uh, words of Jesus in all the Bible. Perhaps even some of the most recognizable of all of His uh, teachings. He's dealing here with the subject of anxiety. And as I thought about, why are these words so sweet? Why do these words, uh, um, uh, why Why are they so memorable? Why probably have the majority of Christians at, at one time or another just clung to these words, been comforted by these words? I thought, you know, it's probably because we all, and one way or another, to one degree or another, deal with anxiety. The stuff that he is talking about here, the the topic that he is addressing, the solution that he brings, the word of comfort that is present in those we need them. I need them. That's why they're so sweet. That's why they're so, uh, uh, popular, memorable, um, well known, I think. I can at least say for myself, I am no stranger to anxiety. Um, you can probably tell I typically run at a, at a higher level energy wise. And sometimes that energy gets me in trouble. I got a lot I want to do, a lot I want to see, a lot I want to get done, whatever it may be. And, and, and sometimes I, 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 I kid you not, I will find myself unable to breathe. You call it a panic attack, call it whatever you want. It's not that severe, but I'll find myself choking on my own throat, if you will, just Almost as if there's like a hand around my neck. And, um, when I stop and I consider what's going on in my heart in these moments, what's happening in these moments, undoubtedly the thing that I uncover is anxiety. I'm anxious. There are things I feel I must do that I'm not sure I have what it uh, takes to get done. There's 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 something I feel I must be that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to be. There's something I need to face that I don't I don't I don't know how to face it. There's people's opinions of me that I am concerned. they're becoming bigger to me, and there's all of a sudden I'm wondering how am I? Gonna, I don't think I can please, or what am I going to do? Sorry, this thing keeps getting in my face here. Um, and it gets me by the neck the cumulative effect is there's almost like this burden that feels uh, too much to bear and you call it anxiety I wonder if you've ever experienced something similar I don't mind throwing myself under the bus if it means we can be honest that we're all struggling people uh, I, your pastor included Um, We all struggle with this in one way or another. I'm almost certain of it. Uh, Just even looking at the statistics, it would seem to bear this out. Um, According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety, I wonder if you know, is the most common mental health disorder in the United States, affecting nearly one-third of both adolescents and adults, and it's on the rise in teens in particular. And the statistic here, make note, is referring to anxiety that is severe enough you could call it a disorder. So a third of Americans uh, are dealing with anxiety to such a degree that you could call it a disorder. Well, I think what we can say then is one way or another, probably we're looking at a ubiquitous situation where we are all dealing with anxiety some of us perhaps more severely, uh, some of us more deep in the throes of it, but all of us facing it in one way or another. So this text comes to us. Um, it's such a good, good word. Proverbs twelve, twenty-five 25 uh, writes this, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And I certainly have been hoping and praying that our time in this text in Luke this morning will be that good word that lifts the burden from our hearts this morning. What we're going to do is kind of organize my thoughts under two headings uh, here. One, anxiety's cause. Two, Anxiety's cure. I hope to spend the majority of my time on the cure, but I do want to look at the cause for a moment. Any um, physician that is ever trying to address an issue knows, well, you've got to look at the cause the cause before you can get to the cure. Symptoms are one thing, but is there anything underneath the symptoms? What's causing the symptoms? Because if we can get to that, then we can start to really change the issue. So, I want to look at the cause of anxiety, and it might be a bit surprising now, Just caveat here i don 't have um, the time to go into the nuance. Uh, that's involved in uh, fully addressing someone who is dealing with uh, anxiety. I recognize that there are times when we, we are embodied souls. We are physical and spiritual beings. I recognize there are times when body attacks soul, you might say, when there are chemical, physiological things that can come in and change in medication, diet. All this can help. But Jesus is mainly in our text talking about the anxiety that moves from the heart, the inner man, outward and so that's what we're going to be looking at this one what is the cause of that sort of anxiety that starts in here the way i'm relating to the world to god or not and it may manifest itself physically no doubt like beads of sweat on your forehead choking on the air but it starts somewhere in here what's the cause of this I say that um, we might be, be a bit surprised at what I think is the biblical answer, um, and that's because uh, I think oftentimes when it comes to anxiety, we we kind of feel like we are um, victims in the middle of it. Like anxiety is something that is the result of what's happening outside of me. Meaning, because this person is saying that, because this situation is so hard, because work, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening, I am suffering from anxiety. I am under the weight of this, dealing with anxiety. There's this sense that the anxious person—it's—it's—it's a—it's a weak place. It's—I'm unable uh, uh, to get through this sort of thing. It's a pitiable place to be, and it draws our compassion and rightly so, it it certainly should, but Jesus would say something else about anxiety. Jesus would say uh, something, again, that perhaps is surprising to us. He's making it plain here in our text, I think, and I'll soon show you how, that anxiety actually follows on the tail of things like avarice, covetousness. Greed, lust, worry inevitably accompanies greed. In other words, though anxiety may on the surface of it seem innocent and pitiable, there is something sinister, even sinful to it. Now hear me, I'm not, I'm not trying to... Listen, I, I talk about my own anxiety here, but we've got to be willing to be honest about what's underneath, what's going on. If we really want help, we've got to know we're not just victims in the middle of it. Yes, things are hard, but our hearts are engaging in such a way that's, that, that, that we're learning something about our own desires and our own faith or lack thereof. What we think of God is becoming clear in those moments. Now this is why I read the full breadth of those verses uh, as I did. I I wanted you to see the connection Jesus makes for his disciples and us here between verses 13 to 21 and verses 22 and following. That was the thing that just kind of blew me away. The way that Jesus just immediately shifts from the topic of greed and covetousness and lust for goods and earthly stuff to anxiety. So... The, the 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 former verses there, um, verses uh uh thirteen to twenty-one uh clearly deal no one would argue with me here, with with avarice, with greed, with covetousness. That's why verse fifteen he warns his disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And then he tells them a parable, and the point of the parable is pursuing stuff. And greed is is, is vanity, and it will get you nowhere. The whole, the whole, the whole scene starts with the brother who says, "Jesus, hold on! I know you're in the middle of something, but please tell my brother to divide his stuff with me. I want this world's goods. I want uh, uh, stuff here and now. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm, I'm covetous towards the things of earth, money, food, clothing, whatever. And the parable is about a guy who just fills his barns full. He gets it all." And then it just comes crashing down. And now catch this. Verse 22. Jesus turns to his disciples and says what? You've got to catch that word. Therefore. In other words, in light of all that I've been saying about covetousness, pursuing the world's goods, pursuing you know your best life, now all this stuff. In light of all I've been saying. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. In other words, anxiety follows on the tail of avarice. Worry inevitably accompanies greed. Those given to materialism, those given to pursuing their treasure here on this earth will inevitably find themselves anxious, burdened with anxiety. Either they will be anxious to get because they don't have, or they will be anxious to keep because they're scared that they will lose what they do have. But one way or another, they will be battling with anxiety. They are fighting a war they cannot win against moth, rust, thief, and time. And deep down, they know it. A castle's being built on the sand, and the tide is coming in. You feel it. So even in the midst of all sorts of worldly riches... There's this gnawing anxiety. And Jesus is telling us, man, as you pursue the things of this world, you got to understand. As you look around, you say, I wish I could have that. I wish I could have that. I want to have this. Is God going to provide this? You've got to understand what's going to come along with that is anxiety. Burdens. If you really stop and investigate your anxious heart, if you are able to peel back some of the layers that immediately want to point fingers outside of you, look in, I think you will see the same. You want and you are afraid that you won't get. You have plans for your life and you're not sure that God is going to take orders from you and work it out the way you want. We're anxious people because we're covetous people. Because there's idolatry. Because we're pursuing things other than God. The only thing that lasts. We want to establish our own security, our own pleasure, identity for ourselves rather than find it in Him. But there is one step behind even this Idea of avarice or covetousness that we can go, and uh, it's to what um, uh, C.S. Lewis calls the the mother of all sins. Uh, behind every sin, here's what you're going to find. Behind everything, here's what you're going to find: pride. Pride. C.J. Mahaney, in his little book we've kept in the back there, I'm not sure if there's any still available or not. I haven't kept up with it. Uh, humility. Uh, he writes this: where there's worry. Where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I am experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. I think, if I recall his argument in in, in his book there, he's talking about that text, I believe it's in 1 Peter 5, where, where Peter says, Cast all your cares. Humble yourselves before God, casting your anxieties or your cares on Him because He cares for you. Now, before that, Peter says, listen, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humble people say, I can't bear the weight, but you can. Proud people... He would follow are not casting their anxieties on Him. They're holding Him in. i got this. It's on me. I want to work this out the way I want it to be. I don't want to trust Him with this or that detail of my life. And we kill ourselves from the inside out, even though we're pursuing our own pleasure. That's the irony. That's the tragic irony of our sin. We self-destruct. And anxiety is just one of the manifestations of that. Anxiety is, in a sense, then, I think, going dark to God. It's living as if God isn't here, as if what he's said won't come true for you, as if what he's doing won't apply to you. But if I could put it in its most pointed form, I would say this, your anxiety says in essence, God cannot be trusted to come through for me here, it's up to me. You're anxious because you know you can't handle it. That's what makes us feel like we're victims and we're weak and we're and we're small because you're you're anxious because you know you can't handle the weight, but you're still unwilling Give it over. To trust him. Because he might not do with your life what you want him to do. What then? So here's the crazy thing. Well, I'll tell you this actually real quick. That's why in verse 28, as Jesus is dealing with anxiety, did you catch this? He says, Oh, you of little, what? Faith. It's your relationship with God that's in question here. As you're in the throes of anxiety. Oh, you have little faith, you're not seeing God, you've gone dark to God, who He is, what He said, what He's doing. You're saying something about God when you're anxious, you're saying, I don't think He's here. So, what this means, and this is what I have to recognize, is <laughs> those hands that are around my neck, in those moments, you want to point at this, you want to point at that, you want to point at that, you want to know whose hands those are? Mine. They're mine. So now, there's the cause. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? What's Jesus going to do with that? Anxiety's cure. Um, it seems to me, Jesus, as the good physician here, is attempting to kind of take us through a course of treatment, as it were, to, to help us deal with this kind of anxiety. In uh, the verses that follow, what he's going to do is going to give us four things to consider. At least that's how I'm reading this. He's going to give us four things to consider. And with each consideration, he's going to help us draw out, he wants us to draw out a certain conclusion. And as we kind of move along and progress with him through these considerations, drawing these conclusions, we will end kind of at his ultimate goal, hopefully, God willing. And that is, namely, we will find ourselves freed from excessive concern for the things of this world and finally able to be wholly concerned for the things of God. Like the crazy thing about the Bible, about how the scriptures display or talk about anxiety, it's actually not wrong to be anxious or concerned. It's just an issue of what? Paul will talk about him and he'll talk about Timothy and he'll use the same word. We don't translate it in anxiety because we're, we're kind of concerned about what that might insinuate to uh, the people that read the the, the the scriptures. But it's the same word and he says, I am burdened. Actually, I do think the ESV says, with anxiety, for all the churches. And and he talks about Timothy, and he says, man, this guy's going to be anxious for your needs. This is a crazy thing. We shift from concern, excessive concern for us, to going, wow, God has me. I can be freed up to pursue his kingdom and be concerned for you. It's amazing. That's the sort of thing I think Jesus is moving us towards as we move through these four considerations. But hopefully you'll see that and even experience it as we go. First consideration would be this. Um, Consider life. Is Verse 23. And I, I think the conclusion that he wants us to draw as he calls us to consider life in general is that it is more. It is more than just stuff. It is more than uh, food and clothing and, 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 and the things that we might often make our life about, our possessions, our things. Read back from verse 22, and you'll kind of see the context for this. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body, more than clothing to be clear, I don't think that Jesus is saying here that food and clothing are unimportant. In fact, I know he's not, because in verse 30 he's going to say the Father knows you need these things. They are essential. Food and clothing, and stuff, shelter, drink, whatever it may be, he knows you need these things. He's not saying that they're not important. What he is saying is that they're not worthy of your anxiety. They're not worthy of your excessive concern. Life is... It's about so much more than these things we often gravitate towards and focus on. To do that, to kind of turn towards our stuff, build bigger barns, try to get secured, eat, drink, and be merry, I've got everything I could ever want, I'm secure, I've got pleasure, I've got identity. To do that is to miss the point of life, to miss the so much more of life. Um, to give you an illustration of how this, uh, so you can kind of grab a hold of this, uh, it's kind of funny. We, um, uh, so, I had been wanting to buy Megan a a birthday gift for quite a while. Her birthday was in September, so you can call me a bad husband if you want, uh, but we just got it a couple days ago. Uh, I had been wanting to get her something, and um, we just were unsure about what what to do. I knew I wanted to get her something uh, for the kitchen, Um, but we weren't sure what, what we wanted to go with. And then we're like, okay, actually our toaster oven just looks like it died. So let's go with a toaster oven. But then we went into Bed Bath and Beyond on our birthday. We're like, man, there's so many options. What do we do? We got to read reviews and make sure we get, you know, uh, the best or whatever. And so finally, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm going. Listen, we got to get that toaster oven. We gotta get this, this, uh, kitchen up and running. And so, uh, the night before Thanksgiving, or at least I guess it was the night before my parents, uh, got here on Tuesday, we went to, uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. We'd done our research, we got our coupons, we cut out our stuff. I still, listen, I kid you not, I still have gift cards to Bed Bath and Beyond from our wedding. Okay? I, so this was awesome. It was like we were able to go all out because I like, like we're not gonna spend this. Look at this, it's been here for ten years almost. Um, but anyways, we got so we got the Lexus of toaster ovens, all right? The, the Breville, whatever. I mean this thing, I mean I kid you not, this thing can bake, it can broil, it can toast, it can dehydrate, it can air fry. I don't even know what air fry is. But it can't, how do you fry without without grease? Like, I don't even know if I want to do that, but it does it. And uh, we got this thing out of the box, and, you know, music was playing. We, we got it up on the, the shelf. Uh, I could just see the joy in, in my wife's eyes. It's awesome. She loves to cook, loves being in the kitchen. This thing was amazing to her. We stepped back. We looked at this thing sitting there in our kitchen. We're like, this is, this is awesome. But then this feeling of dread came over us is here's what we realized. We're going to have to cook in this. <laughs> hear me out. Like This thing slowly but surely is going to start to look like our old one did as the kids get their little greasy fingers on it and the crumbs fall all in. You know the bottom area of a toaster oven and there's just stuff in there. You don't even know what it is. Pizza that you heated up, the cheese spills over, grease is done. Go, I, we both like we don't want to cook in this thing. Here's where I'm going with this. To get so anxious about keeping the toaster oven pristine and clean and perfect would mean we can't touch it, right? Would mean we can't use it for what it was intended to be used for. That thing was designed to get messy making meals so that we could gather around a table with family and friend and enjoy an evening together. There's so much more than just having a pristine toaster oven in our kitchen. That's supposed to produce things like fellowship and joy, relationship. And so if we kind of focus in there, we miss the point. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here when he says life is so much more than what we often make of it. We often make life about everything that's here and now, the stuff of life. We get so consumed about it. He goes, "That's just context in many ways. That's just opportunity for 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 worshiping God, getting on his mission, doing so much more, living on a higher plane. Food, clothing, shelter, drink. Think about it like this. Um Maybe this will help you see what I think Jesus is saying here. When I gather around the table with my kids, and we're praying before a meal or something, what I'll often say uh, things like this: uh, "You know, God, thank you for this food. It is an evidence of your grace to us. We don't deserve it. We see in this meal your provision, and God, we're so grateful that we get to share." this meal together. And Lord, we pray that the energy that this food provides us with, that we will use that energy in service of you and others. Do you see what happens there? Do you see how uh, uh, food becomes a context? Filling your belly. It's not just about my belly, my taste buds, my appetite. That's to, to, to make that the meal about that alone is to make ourselves akin to the animal's. Just pigs eating slop. But what really God intends for food and all these other things to be, is kind of springboards leading us into so much more, windows leading us into so much more. It's opportunity uh, to uh, to worship and gratitude for the God who provides. It's opportunity for fellowship with family and friend. It's opportunity, it's fuel for mission. And that's the sort of thing I think he's getting at here, that to just get so anxious about our food, anxious about our bellies. Like Paul would say in Philippians, their God is their bellies. Just fill me. Anxious about our stuff is to miss the point of it all. And the kingdom mission we get to be a part of in Jesus. That's just kind of phase one of... um, of his his uh, course of treatment here. I want to continue on with you. Uh, second consideration that he gives us, uh, I'll draw your attention now to verses 25 and 26 in particular, uh, where I think he's asking us not just to consider life in general now, but to consider death. To consider death. And the conclusion I'm thinking he wants us to draw here is that it is inevitable. <laughs> It is inevitable. Now, let me uh, read to you these verses. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So I think he's trying to push on us the, the, the inevitability of death and how utterly powerless we are to do anything about it at the end of the day. Oh, sure. Yes, we have our technologies. Yes, we have our medical advances. Yes, maybe we can literally kind of add an hour to our life by anxiously working and laboring and all these sorts of things. But I think what Jesus is trying to say is is at the end of the day, death is a cold, hard fact, and it's coming. And there's no technological advancement. There's no little contraption they can give you at a hospital. They're not going to come up with anything, try as they may, that will beat death. There's only one who can defeat death. And he did it at Calvary. So, he's trying to get us to consider death. And the reality that it's coming for us all. Now, from a biblical worldview, we of course know why this is. The sinfulness of man, the curse of God on this world, because of it, right? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12. We know why death is here. And he's asking us to consider it for a moment. To live, learn to live our lives. Learn to prioritize in light of it. Uh, I was reading an article the other day where the author, not a Christian, uh, as far as I could tell, um, was reflecting on the certainty of death and oftentimes in our culture how we have this kind of stubborn denial of it. We live as if it's not coming. And he was talking in particular uh, about how we kind of start our families and choose whether we will or won't have kids and when and how, you know, all these sorts of things, how we kind of order our lives. But let me read you this. It's a little lengthy, but I thought it was profound in our social world in our cultural class at our point in history people are brought up to structure their lives as if time were something a person accumulated one is wary of getting married too soon of having children too young adulthood is a condition to enter cautiously and gradually The figure of the (laughs) kidult, no offense to you kidults in here, uh, exists as a warning that you should not move on to the next step until you're certain you're ready. But this idea of certainty is a sham, a distraction, something to turn your attention away from the only truly certain thing, which is that your time will run out. If you intend to have children, but you don't intend to have them just yet, you are not banking extra years as a person who is still too young to have children. You are subtracting years from the time you will share the world with your children. Did you hear that? That was profound to me. All our conversations about choices and priorities and life decisions are held in the shadow of the great constraint. The clock is running. Only it's not a clock, it's a sand glass. According to the Social Security Administration's online calculator, on average or I'm sorry, an average man born the day I was born can expect to live thirty four point nine more years for a total of eighty two. When I first checked it when drafting this piece, it was thirty five point four. Though it would be a light though I thought it would be a light hearted exercise, I felt real dread as I was entering the birth date, and despite and despite myself shock when I saw how small the number was. If so I went in there and I did the same thing, and just let it sink in, I'm almost halfway there. That's crazy. Time's just running. But you hear what he's saying? He's saying in our culture, we like to, we like to reverse that. We like to live as if time is not something that we're losing each day, but something we can kind of store up and do what we want with. And he's going, man, we're lying to ourselves. Death is coming for everyone. There was one more thing he had to say here that I uh, was particularly moved by. He he goes on to describe how being a parent of young kids forces us to face this relentless march. Maybe as adults we can kind of get away with thinking it's not happening. A little bit more pain in our our back or whatever, but uh, it seems to move a little slower than when you have young kids how many boxes of clothes do we go through because they don't fit anymore? Listen to him describe this. Life moves along at an unexceptional, unexamined pace, and suddenly it's the first day of school. And then it's the first day of school again. The jeans I remember just buying him are up above the ankles. The younger boy kisses me back when I kiss him goodnight, but but by last year the older boy started to twist away from holding hands a few yards before the school door to dart off ahead. Now he just walks to school on his own. There's time still for him to circle back for a hug at day's end. Someday, though, a hug will be the last one. He's just watching his kid and he's going, no way. It used to be I was your hero. Now it's kind of like I'm your buddy and now I'm an embarrassment. Or now we're just, you know, and and, and I think I was particularly moved by his description there uh, because of my own kids. Um, some of you may know, you know, there were complications in our last pregnancy with Levi. And um, so uh, we are not going to be able to have children anymore. And I tell you what, watching little Levi develop, watching him mature, watching him reach another milestone, you know. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. It is a moment of celebration. and We're excited. We kind of do so now with tears in our eyes. Because we go, wow, wow. I guess this will be the last, at least of our own kids, unless God calls us to adopt. I guess this will be the last time rejoicing in a first step, the last time rejoicing in those spoken words, the last time, you know, that He moves from 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 uh, nursing to uh, being independent or whatever it is. And it's just, it's hard, but it is the reality of life that our time is running out. That our time is short, and so the question Jesus is trying to get us to ponder. Is he says, listen, you can be anxious all you want. You're not going to add hours to your life. God knows the day. He's numbered the days. He's trying to get us to think about this in view of this reality. Then he's trying to ask us, what are we living for? If not to be anxious about the stuff of this world that is slipping from our heads, what are we to be anxious about? He's he's trying to get us to go the way of Psalm 39, 4-7, where the author says this, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow." Surely nothing, uh, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You see how that shifted? Teach me to kind of number my days. Show me how short this time is, how fleeting life is. Don't let me labor and labor for stuff and the things of this world. Rather, let me come out on this and say, my hope is in the only eternal one. The only unchanging one. My hope is in you. A brush with death often, though sadly not often, or not not always, um, awakens us to the larger point of life, right? It kind of helps us reorg our priorities. I can't believe I spent all my time there. I wish I'd spent more time here. Jesus is getting us to do that now. Say, listen, let's put our hope in God. Now, let's move towards the third consideration here. Um, so he's called us to consider life, to consider death. Now, I think he's going to call us to consider creation. And the conclusion we're to draw, I think, is that God is here. And this I'm going to kind of cobble together, verses 24 and, uh, verses 20 and 27 and 28. Um, the consideration of our death... And the inevitability of it, the, the the powerlessness we really are, we really have when it comes to trying to face it, um, could be a dreadful, a terrifying thing, right? And so it would be if God were not here, if God were not present, if God were not in the midst, valuing us, caring for us, walking with us through it. But we don't live in a world like you might read in the science textbooks where they'll claim that, okay, some mindless, meaningless bang, here you are, there is no God, you're all alone to face the dread of your existence. You're going to die, turn to dust, eaten by worms, get over it. We don't live in that world. There's no answer to anxiety in that worldview. In fact, all you have is materialism in that worldview. If there is no God, if there is no soul, all it is is my belly. And you better get and get and get because this is all you got. Death is a frightening thing no matter how much you try to act like it's not. But it doesn't have to be. For the Christian, why? Because we believe God. Well, Jesus teaches us here that God has created the world. And he didn't just create it and leave. He creates it. Now he's intimately involved in sustaining it, and he's caring for it, even uh, to down to the smallest detail. And he's especially got his eyes on you and on me, on those made in his. Image That, I think, is the point of these verses I want to read to you. Look at verse 24. Again, Jesus is encouraging us to consider creation, to help with our anxiety. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? I thought about this and I mean isn't this exactly what the anxious person needs? To consider creation. Now think about it again. Remember, anxiety is going dark to God. Anxiety is me getting bigger, God getting smaller, vanishing from view. Anxiety is me bending inward with self-concern and self-reliance, trying to come up with something on my own to figure this thing out. And here comes Jesus' next round of, of treatment for our anxiety. And he says, listen, go outside, open your eyes and look. Get out of your little cubicle. Get out of your little world. Go out and realize this universe, this world is so much bigger than you. Anxiety makes the world so small. You think everything is coming down because your little life is coming down. But he's saying here, consider creation and you will realize it's a lot more stable than you thought and there's a lot more going on than you thought and God is here and he is caring he is at work and he has his eyes even on you um, I've told you probably I think before that I like to run in the hills behind my house um, I know that there are a, vi- a variety of reasons why people like to run um, uh, and the way that they kind of like to do it. You know, I've run with my father-in-law before, and I I think I annoyed him because I'm not this way. But he liked, you know, it's all, for him it's about the time. He's counting the minutes. How many minutes was my mile? Uh, he's counting the calories, the steps, you know, that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with it. Plenty of you probably do the same thing. you got your little Fitbit on, and you're, you know, doing your whatever. And it doesn't matter to you where you are. You could be on a treadmill, on a track. You're just trying to get the heart rate going. And, you know, whatever, burn off Thanksgiving dinner. But somewhere along the way, I realized that is not why I run. In fact, the last thing I want to do is run on a treadmill or, or go around in circles on a track or even on the street. I, I go to the hills. I, I run in the hills because I need to see God. <laughs> I need to see God. I need to get out of my little space and realize how big. I need to, I need to see God. I need to watch how slowly but surely the rain that's now falling, praise God, on our city and on our hills will will kind of turn to grass, and then in a few more months, flowers. That He literally will clothe these hills with wonder. Just paint them like Bob Ross. (laughs) My kids are into Bob Ross right now. He just will put some beautiful stuff here, beautiful, just, just for us to look at for a few months. I need to get out there. I need to see it. I need to see the birds. I need to watch the bluebirds and the the way that He cares for them. I need to see these things because I'm so prone to go in. I need to see God and this text coming to life. I need to hear Him say, you see all of this? Well, let me tell you something. How much more will I care for you? Genesis 1, Psalm 8 say. Those made in his image, men and women, we are kind of the pinnacle of his creation. He he has his eyes especially on us. How much more? If he's doing that with the fields, if he's doing that with the birds, is he going to do that for you? And anxiety just starts to dissipate. You see, for me, running is so much more than about health for my body. That's starting to bring health to my soul. I was convicted by something a friend shared with me the other day, and um, I'll read it to you. Here, it's from David Murray's book entitled "Reset," and he writes this: "Lots of people call God Creator, but live like evolutionists." Do you hear this? <laughs> it's as if life is about the survival of the fittest, rather than about living like a dependent creature, trusting our Creator rather than ourselves. Isn't that crazy? Or we might say, God created all of this, I, you know, I'm a creationist, but we live like evolutionists. It's up to me to survive, and get what I need, and, and make it happen. Anxious all the while, because we don't believe the Creator is caring for us. We don't believe He's upholding, He's providing. It's on me, and I'll cut you down to get what I need. Which world do you live in? The creationist world, the, the world of Genesis 1, the world of Luke 12, or the world that's described for us in most of the science textbooks. God isn't here. That's a fairy tale. Get over it. It's up to you. So Jesus is telling us, man, creation has a ministry. Step outside, consider creation. God is here. You don't need to be anxious. Last uh, consideration he gives us here is um, what I would say this. he's, He's calling us to consider your father. Uh, This is verses 29 through 31. This is kind of the end of the section I wanted to look at here this morning. I think the conclusion we're to draw from this in particular is that you are free. Uh, This really is, it seems to me, kind of bringing things to a climax. This is kind of the most potent form of treatment he could provide. The antidote for anxiety is in these verses. I just simply want to read to you Jesus' words. He says, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. In verses 24, 27, 28, he directs us to God as creator. But kind of takes that a step further now and he says, "Listen, he's more than just your creator. He is your dad." And like a good dad, he is going to care for His children, provide for His children. He's got you in His hand. The whole thing All of Jesus' logic in these verses turns on verse 30, and I emphasized it even as I read it. Why can we finally let go of anxiety and self-concern and instead give ourselves to the things of His kingdom to be anxious, if you will, in love for others, anxious, if you will, in love for God? Why can we be excessively wholly concerned for Him and others now instead of ourselves? Why do we not need to be worried about food and clothing and the things of this world? It's because your father knows that you need them. He knows what you need better than you do. He's got his eyes on what you need more than you even do. Now, we've got to recognize sometimes what we want and need are different. And that's where we sometimes go, I'll take this one on my own, thank you, God. And that's when we spiral off into anxiety. We have our own plan. But if we can just lay it it at the Lord's feet, He knows. If we move from anxiety to abandon, then there's freedom there. Now, one final thing. That I'll leave you with before we close is this. Um, in all of these things that Jesus is, is mentioning here, in all these ways he's talking about, you know, an antidote to anxiety, we must not miss that Jesus himself stands before us as the surest sign and seal of the Father's provision. We could talk about food, we could talk about clothing, we could talk about all these people, but at the end of the day, what we need to talk most about is Jesus. The one who is standing before his disciples is himself the evidence to them that the Father will not hold back anything. In fact, if we just have a little fun with this, if we do want to talk about food or whatever this may be, Jesus is at the bottom of it really the essential provision. That's why I think about this. Okay, let's talk about God providing us food. Jesus is it. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. John 6.35 You want to talk about God providing us drink. Jesus is it. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7.38 You want to talk about God providing us clothes and shelter. Jesus is it. Galatians 3.27 As many of you as were baptized into Christ have Put on Christ. The Greek there means put on clothes. Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our clothing. Jesus is the one that comes over us so that we can stand righteous before a holy God, sinners though we be. I want to talk about the fear of death Jesus has defeated it 1st Corinthians 15:57 want to talk about adding hours to the span of our lives well knowing Jesus is eternal life John 17:3 I mean Jesus has come to provide all of these things at an even deeper level than we even know. I'm not trying to say that God is not literally interested in providing us food, drink, clothing. He is. I'm just simply saying that in Jesus, He's providing us a whole lot more. It's going even deeper and it's standing right in front of them His life, His death, His resurrection will be the essential provision of the Father to wayward children. It's how you and I, rebels, enemies, become children of the living God. So here's what I would say. Jesus is here, not just as God's provision of these sorts of things at a deep level, but also to help us trust and so as we now kind of move towards song and this, just I want us to just be praying, conversing, talking with Him. He is the one who is here to help. He knows that this life, there are a lot of things to be burdened with. There are a lot of cares. There's a lot of stuff that could choke your neck. And he wants to help us walk in the freedom of the children of God. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for laying your life down so that we could have true and everlasting life beginning now god i pray that anxiety would melt as we turn as we turn away from self-reliance away from covetousness away from the things of this world to you help us to trust you you're a good dad and you're caring for us more than we know. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.